We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 132 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. I am Trevor the Iron Fist. With me, Paul, the 12th man. How are you, Paul? I'm good, thanks, Trevor. How are you? Very good. So we're, uh, dear listener, no Velvet Glove tonight. We're actually doing it a day early for other reasons and we couldn't line up with Scott, so it's just myself and the 12th man. The glove is off tonight. <laughs> You're on fire already. The glove, the glove is off. So, um, so Scott's had a night off. Anyway, we'll, uh, we've got lots to talk about as per usual and we'll start rattling through them, Paul. Um, first up... Uh, the Ruddock Religious Freedom Review Panel. Dear listener, the cut-off date, I think, is the 14th of February, and I've been promising for a long time to um, do my submission. And the good news is I've done it. But Well done, I, Fist. Well, you seem a bit... Uh, you're not so sure about my approach. I, yeah, I'm, I just wonder if they'll take it seriously, frankly, mm. and you should explain to the listener that yes. it's, it's a bit satirical. Yes, I start off with a bit of a satirical sort of um, approach to it. But before I get on to my submission, uh, and of course there are links on, well, it's on the website, of course, and there's links on the podcast notes to it, so you can have a look at it at your leisure and we'll talk about it a bit, but... Just to give you some idea of the sorts of submissions that they are receiving from the religious right, there is a character called Bernard Gaynor. Have you heard of him before? I've heard of the name. Very Don't know anything about him. Hard right, pro-religious character, former soldier, um, now commentator on these affairs. Uh, he's put in his um, submission and... Is so, it something about the name, Bernard? I don't know. As in Tommy. Corey, as no, in Corey. Or, or, yeah, it could be. could be. But in any event, he's put in a submission. And, and later on when we're talking about mine and you think mine sounds crazy, just listen, think back to the sort of submissions that are coming in from the hard right of the religious lobby and maybe mine won't seem so crazy after all. Indeed. So, um, So anyway, he's put in a submission and... Uh, the easiest way for me to deal with it was to... Uh, there's a website or a blog called The Stirrer, and The Stirrer has gone through the Bernard Gaynor submission and and found some highlights for us. So I'm just going to go... This, this is the sort of thing that um, some members of the Nutbag Brigade are, are putting through. So in his submission, in all seriousness, he's saying... Um, uh, he's saying... In order to ensure that every Australian can live to enjoy religious freedom, laws legalising abortion should be repealed. Laws placing anti-Christian and anti-freedom restriction zones around abortion centres should be repealed. Laws should be enacted preventing businesses such as banks from discriminating against customers on their basis of their expression of Christian-based opinions. Have you ever heard of a bank doing anything at all to discriminate against Christian... Neither have I. 
uh, all state and commonwealth funding for Islamic programs in schools should be scrapped. Homosexual marriage laws should be repealed. Uh, in another section he goes on, laws should be enacted to prevent business from firing employees because they express Christian-based opinions in their private capacity. So that has happened, actually. Has it really? Yes, there was a business where they had an employee and on her Facebook page she made some sort of Bernard Gaynor-type statements. I, uh, they were pretty unsavoury for most of us but would have been right in line with the religious right. And her, her employer said, well, you just don't suit our organisation. Oh, really? See you later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's saying that should not be allowed... But in the next breath, he says, laws should be enacted to allow or protect religious bodies and schools for discriminating on the grounds of homosexuality Ah. and expressing views opposing homosexuality. The old double standard raises its ugly head. (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. So they don't see it, these people, do they? They They really don't don't see it. They don't see the double standards at all. And they think that everything's all good for Christians and it can be denied to other religions right. but then they claim the benefits because of religion not because of Christianity mm. so they'll use the overarching notion of religion for their little subset mm. of religion and they don't get it do you suspect that in their minds i mean it's the the old thing about you know the only true religion is the religion of the only true God and Saviour. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're saying other religions shouldn't have the same protection because they're not real religions, they're fake religions. That could be what they're thinking, mm. but they just bandy the word religious freedom around mm. when really they mean Christian freedom. That's right. Yeah. Mm. So bearing that in mind, uh, 12th man, my submission you know, takes on a different colour. Yeah. I'll put it to you. Anyway, dear listener, uh, what I've done, just to give you an idea of... We'll put it this way. With a submission to the panel, you can make as many submissions as you like. There's no reason why you can't do two, three, four or five of them and and address things in different ways depending how you feel. So um, so I've drafted one last night. I actually had a lot of fun writing it. This is it. a one-night effort. Yeah. That's pretty good for one night. Thank you, Paul. Um, so, because I was having fun doing it, and you know, you've got to do things. Yeah, I, I sensed uh, an element of fun in it, actually. Yeah, good. Okay. I'll give you the start, dear listener, and we'll see how we go as to, as to whether we continue. When, while I was reading it, I, yeah. could also, I could imagine your smiling face, <laughs> you know, as you were typing away at the keyboard. Yeah. Uh, to the Radic panel, thank you for the opportunity to make this submission. As a member of the Satan Worshippers of Australia, I have for a long time been very concerned by the lack of protection for my religious freedom. As Satanists, we follow a code of rebellion against undeserved authority. If possible, our form of rebellion is to confront our opponents using their own doctrines. This will all make sense as I spell out my concerns and demonstrate how some simple laws to protect religious freedom will operate in day-to-day transactions and allow me to fully practice my faith. The wonderful thing about the changes being debated is that any changes granting special religious privileges will apply to all religions and may be used against all religions. 
Not many people realise this, and I'm sure Mr Ruddock and Father Brennan will be delighted to make recommendations which reduce the power of the Christian faith by increasing the rights of lesser religions, such as the humble Satan worshippers of Australia. There's my intro. And I've gone through a series of topics, and I've, uh, as a fictional leader of the Satanist group, <laughs> given my uh, tongue-in-cheek um, call for more religious freedom protection. So, as an example, uh, wedding cakes. Incidentally, dear listener, you, you know how much Paul and I have discussed wedding cakes. Last week, when Paul was here doing the podcast, my son was... Uh, arrived from out of town with his fiancée. They're getting married in, later in the year. And would you believe that they had spent the day with their wedding cake maker deciding on what flavours and they had samples and um, a great website to look at and all the rest of it. So it was just quite ironic that um, when Paul met my son, uh, the conversation was about yeah, that was interesting, wasn't it? Yeah, all the things. And I was quite shocked as to the cost of a wedding cake. Yeah, not it cheap. It was amazing. Yeah, not cheap. Um, and, and they hadn't gone for the expensive option, had they? I don't know. I didn't really... Um, yeah, they, they said that theirs was, you know, relatively... Middle modest. of the range. Yeah, yeah, middle of the range. Not mm. anywhere near the top of the range. Mm. And I think... They mentioned a figure of around eight hundred dollars, yeah, six hundred or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I thought so, it was more. It might have been six hundred, but anyway, it was it was in the it was well above five hundred. Yeah. And I was like, my goodness, yeah. for a cake. Yeah. But of course, the decoration was quite elaborate, mm. and uh, you know, including very beautifully made uh, sugar flowers and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it was quite ironic to have that yes, conversation. It was um, while you're here. So wedding cakes, I've said in the submission, as part of my faith, I would have no problem creating a custom-made wedding cake for a same-sex couple. In fact, the debauchery and sinfulness of the gay lifestyle is something we Satanists can appreciate. On the other hand, we have a problem with serving Muslims as their preferred deity has an anti-Satanic disposition. Of course, we would not refuse service, but we would want to impose an extra 20% surcharge for any Muslim seeking our services. This may seem draconian, but in fact operates in a similar manner to the jizya imposed by Muslims on people of the book, otherwise known as Christians and Jews. The rate imposed by them seems to vary and can increase depending on the affluence of the infidel. Similarly, if a Muslim should arrive at our shop driving an expensive car, we would want to be able to charge a higher surcharge. So... The point is, if you're going to say that people can refuse service, then perhaps people can charge a higher fee for some people then as well. Mm. Of course, that Muslim tax doesn't apply in Australia. Well, but it's part of the Muslim uh, of Islamic doctrine. It is indeed, yeah. So a true believer fully... Mm. Well, so in other well, words, well, if, if you're the protecting point... their religious freedom, you're protecting their, their right to adhere to their uh, part of their core doctrine. Indeed. Like, in all seriousness, there could well be Muslims writing to the Religious Freedom Panel um, wanting protections to allow them to charge the Jizra uh, in Australia. Mm. Why not? Why not? In, in fact, there's nothing stopping, stopping them from asking. I, yeah. 
I'd be very surprised if they expected anything like that to pass through. But uh, yeah, uh, other topics I've dealt with: freedom of speech, uh, where I talk about the Pope abusing Satanists, uh, baptisms, where I talk about Mormons baptizing um, people post death, and Satanists wishing to um, condemn Mormons post death. Uh, religious garments. Um, my comment on that one was: you would be aware that some members of the Sikh faith insist on carrying a kapan. I note that the Drayton Manor theme park in the UK has banned wheelie shoes for being too dangerous, but six-inch knives are fine provided they are strapped to a Sikh. Of course, it is ceremonial and not intended to be used as a weapon. I feel the same about my trident and am looking forward to tucking it into my tunic when I go to the foot- football. Seems fair. <laughs> uh, um, what else have we got here? Oh, celibacy. Uh, the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse has recommended that the Catholic Church examine its policy that priests must be celibate. This is overreach by a government agency and is a clear breach of religious freedom. Thanks to the celibacy rule, a significant number of Catholic priests are currently enjoying Satan's company and we condemn any efforts to change it. Mm. So what's the Satan worshippers position on celibacy? <laughs> Tongue-in-cheek, it is, uh, you know, don't interfere with, with their religious freedom. This is the whole point of it. There's a whole range of different topics there, dear listener, and... At the end of it, I go, of course, this has been satire, but hopefully it opens the panel's eyes to the dangers in privileging religious practice. And I then go on to give a serious uh, discussion of the statements of Justice Antonin Scalia in that US case where those people were North American Indians wanting to smoke peyote, an illegal drug, and claim that laws saying that they couldn't were in fact restricting their religious freedom and uh, quoting in particular his last comment was to permit this would be to make the professed doctrines of religious belief superior to the law of the land and in effect to permit every citizen to become a law unto himself. Um, So anyway... That's going to go in, and I'm going to do a shortened version which basically concentrates on the Antonin Scalia comments as just a short, brief one that you can more easily copy and paste and put in as your own submission, dear listener. Um, I tried to do it as part of a petition thing on the website, but the plug-in wasn't working, so there we go. Submission's done. Well Read done, Fist. your leisure. So nice piece that. of work. Thank you. Um, Australia Day, done and dusted for another year, 12th man. We're going to miss it, aren't we? Well, it'll be back next same time oh, next year, yeah. surely. Um, part of what happens on Australia Day is the honours. There are Australia Day honours with different people awarded medals for different things. Mungo McCallum, in a piece on the John Menadue blog, has said, do we really need an honours system? Do we really require an order of accoladed ranks, a hierarchy of gongs determined by a group of unelected, excuse me, unelected worthies, uh, dare I call them an elite. Um, He says it doesn't really sit well with Australian egalitarianism and democracy and it smacks of our 
pre-colonial British mm. imperialist masters. Yeah, well, it is, I, I, I assume, you know, a direct descendant of the old you know, knights and, and barons system of, mm. of, the, of the old mother country. Yeah, you know, a lot of the categories, um, like he says here, there are separate categories for the military, awards for police, firefighters and ambulance workers, and even a public service medal, whose recipient's work is invariably described as outstanding. This presumably means that they have been there for a long time without conspicuously stuffing things up. There, there are a lot of medals and things directed to people in certain work categories, but really they're just doing their job, aren't they? Indeed. Uh, to some extent. Um, in fact, I think a lot of the, uh, the knighthoods used to be directed at people who had just been in either in politics or the public service for a long time and, as you say, had not conspicuously stuffed up and so they were rewarded with some sort of honour, weren't they? Yeah. So, you know, if, if you are, in a, uh, say you're the, in the police or the firefighters or ambulance, I mean, those organisations can just have their own awards for in the firefighter of the year, and they probably do. Mm. And surely they're the best ones to decide that sort of thing. And um, I would have thought that would do. Yeah. yeah. Although they do give um, awards to conspicuously sort of... Um, noble people sometimes, you know, yeah. people who well, do a lot of work for some charity. scientists or yeah, scientists, yeah. but also people who do charity work or... But there's also a fair share of sports people and actors and, yes. and celebs. Yes. Um, and you might argue that, you know, talented sports people yeah. get their reward uh, in other ways, don't they? Yeah. They get a lot of... They get usually high public profiles often um, pretty good remuneration from sponsors and things like that. Yeah. I so don't know. I, 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 I don't I, have a strong feeling, but I think it's mm. worthy point, really. Maybe yeah. trim them down drastically. And I think it's worth thinking about. I don't, know. I don't have a strong view either way. Mm. What about homeschooling? We've previously discussed homeschooling and uh, who's doing it and who's not and for what reasons. Mm. And... I came across an article that's linked on the website, and in the UK, they are, late last year, were looking at passing a bill um, which was going to require homeschooling or homeschoolers in England to be registered for the first time, because up until then, they just didn't know who was being homeschooled and who wasn't. It was a really an unregulated area. And the... Uh, National Secular Society in the UK um, made the point that parents have the right to raise their children in a religion or... Well, actually, before I go on, they were saying that a lot of times people were doing it for religious reasons. That was our suspicion. That was our suspicion, Mm. which the statistics didn't necessarily bear out. But the statistics also had... Some figures in the, uh, like, conscientious reasons, which could well have meant religious reasons. The f- not great stats to work mm, with, but certainly the, the stats did bring it into question as to why people were doing it. Mm. Anyway, the UK Secular Society kicks off their article by saying, well, people are doing it usually for religious reasons... And they say, parents have the right to raise their children in a religion or belief community 
and to pass on their religion or belief. But young people also have independent rights. Homeschooling curriculums are often provided by organisations such as ACE, Christian Education, with a primary interest in inculcating religion rather than genuine education. Um, as Baroness Morris said in the debate over the bill, times have changed. We are no longer wedded to the principle of a parent's right to educate their child other than at school trumped everything else. And we accept more now the right of the child to have an education, which may sometimes trump the right of the parents to decide that their child should be educated in a particular way. This is true. Children have rights. I'd like to think so. Yeah. I mean, there is a United Nations declaration of the rights of the child, mm. and I, I, I have some time for that, the view of Baroness Morris, mm. that children should not be totally the property of their parents in terms of their uh, education. Mm. What do you think, Fist? Well, I am the Iron Fist because I take a hard-line view, and it takes a village to raise a child mm. and um, if I was a child stuck in a religious nutbag family and wasn't indoctrinated, I'd be wanting the, the state to get me out and about mm. with other people and I'd be saying they're remiss and negligent if they didn't. And interestingly, we discovered in that article that um, according to the article in Germany, there is a complete prohibition on home education because it's as it says, found to be... Uh... Well, compatible with parental rights to the extent that it is a means of ensuring compulsory school attendance. But apparently in Germany, yes, uh, there's a prohibition on home education. Yeah. So it's always interesting to know with these things what's done in other jurisdictions. It'd be interesting to dig into the history of that in Germany, wouldn't it? Because the Germans are very... You know, very civilised, very smart people on the whole, and um, I'd like to think that they had very good reasons for that prohibition. Probably very practical people, mm. saying, what the hell Indeed. are you doing homeschooling? You yeah. can do a much better job yeah. in a school. Why would you want to? Yes. Um, and Look, sure, some kids have a personality or there are issues that may Learning mean... difficulties sometimes... Yeah mean that they don't quite fit into normal schooling or the, or they don't get the level of um, personalised attention that they really need. Yeah. But I've, I've read anecdotes as well about, you know, very smart, very well-educated people, not necessarily religious people, but just very smart people who thought that the, the regular schooling system wasn't up to par and they could do a better job and, in fact, in, at times, you know, did a very good job of raising their children, educating them yes. uh, to a very high level yes. that they possibly wouldn't have achieved in normal schooling. Yes. But they're probably few and far between, I would think. Yeah, yeah. But I, I like the idea of giving the, you know, uh, prominence to the, the rights of the child at, a, at the risk of dare I say it, too much state control over the, um, over the welfare of children. But, you know, we, we, we have to try and find that balance, don't we? That, that happy place between too much state control and too little state control. 
I suspect at the moment the balance might be one where the government's really saying to parents, oh, well, if you register and homeschool, good luck to you. We're, we're not too interested in what goes on. And maybe if the presumption was, well, you need to really show us that you can handle this and give this kid a well-rounded education. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know where it is at the moment, but it's interesting that Germany has said, nope, not going to allow There that. was a, a, a little video that did the rounds on Facebook a while back, and it was in the United States. And they had, there was this family. They probably came across them at a, some little local fair or something. And it was husband and wife and I think four or five kids. And the, the, the journalist was talking to the kids and asking them very simple questions, mm. you know, a- arithmetic and geography, things like yeah. this. And the kids really Nothing. weren't dealing very well with these very simple questions. So clearly the parents weren't doing a very good job of homeschooling. Mm. And, you know, the obvious message was... Um, you know, homeschooling can be a disaster for the children because it doesn't equip them really for the real world in some cases. Yeah. It's hard to imagine a stretched public service being able to fully monitor what's going on in homeschooling. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, also, I've got a link to an article. I'm not sure what to make of this website, but their suggestion was that Donald Trump has created a new division within the Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights with the express purpose of banning mandatory vaccinations across the country. Um, And they say that he's established something called the Conscience and Religious Freedom Division um, with the express purpose of... um, getting rid of mandatory vaccinations. So, Paul, being a libertarian, what's your well, position on, on... That's your take on, on my Well, well you politics. are more libertarian-minded on issues. Yeah, look, I, I, I don't think I would describe myself as quite a libertarian, but, yeah, you know, I, I obviously don't like too much state control over people's choices in life. So what's your position with vaccinations generally? I, 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 you know, I mean, that article makes me wonder if he'll get that through the American military, and I very much doubt it because Sorry, the American military will be vaccinating all their personnel. In the military? Oh, absolutely. Right, because the military will say if you want to be in the military... You, you have to be to, vaccinated. You have to, yeah. be, you have to stay but, healthy. But they just, want reliable people. But what about the general population? Do you think vaccinations... Should be mandatory? Yes. Um, I don't, actually. Right. Now, I think, you know, as with other things that we've discussed, I think the way forward is education, is public education. In other words, giving children, to start with, good critical thinking skills so that they can evaluate the evidence and they can make their own decisions. But But, obviously... a child can't. I was just getting to that. So, obviously, they grow up, they become you know, good, responsible parents. And then they're equipped to make good choices about what vaccinations their children need. Because, I mean, if you made it mandatory, you know, I mean, we've seen in medical history, there have been some anomalies, as we know. There have been some some dark periods where uh, emergent medical technologies and, 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 and therapies have been used 
uh, and then later found to be either ineffective or posit you know, positively uh, harmful. So I'm, I'm pretty much against medical things being mandatory, but I do think there's a strong case for what? strong advisability being given to certain things. Obviously, we vaccinate babies for a range of illnesses, and it, on the whole, it appears to be a very effective and safe uh, thing to do. So what do you say to the young 12-year-old boy on his deathbed from measles? Oh, don't put who, that on me. Who says, who says to the state, why did you let my parents get away with this? Why wasn't I vaccinated? Uh, the parents are going to be responsible for it, obviously. But to some extent, uh, the state could be responsible by refusing to make it mandatory. Yeah, but look... Because the kid can say, look, I needed protection and I needed other adults in the room to get me immunised when my stupid parents wouldn't allow it, the stupid Jehovah's Witness or whatever they were. It's an imperfect world, Trevor. Yeah. And, look, I, I just, I'm just very wary of giving the state total control over our lives and yes. vaccinations is just part of that. I mean, yeah. I, you know, life is inherently risky and I know yes. that I, I'm with you. I agree yeah. that vaccinations are effective and probably a very good idea. I'm just very reluctant yeah. to give, you know, total control to the state because, I mean, we might have a, a relatively benign state right now. We, we can't be completely sure that we'll always have a benign state. But mm. once you put laws like that or regulations in place, it's very hard to pull them back. A slippery slope. It, it really is. I mean, we just don't know. In 50 years' time, mm. we might be living in a dictatorship. Those laws are already in place. How are we, how are we going to undo them? And then the, the state might have some kind of vaccination for mind control. We, we really don't know. I mean, I know that sounds paranoid and, mm. and weird, but... You know, the future is a very weird place mm. and uh, we just have mm. no guarantees. I'm just very reluctant to give more power to the state than it really needs for anything. See, I'm quite comfortable for the state to say, or, no, no, 10-year-old girls are going to have a rubella injection whether their parents want it or not. Yeah. I'm, I've got just, no problem with that. I think you're just too trusting, Trevor. Well... Is that trust? It is trust. It's trust, trust in what? It's trust in the you know, beneficence of the state, isn't it? It's trust that well, no, the state it's, it's will trust, always make the right choices. It's trust that in relation to the rubella vaccine that, that it works. That's, that's all I'm limiting it to is, is vaccinations that have proven scientific method behind them. So, you know, if the state said, I want everyone to undergo... Uh, cupping and aromatherapy, I'd say, well, no. <laughs> no. How do you know they won't in the future? Well, at that point, I object. But you see, like, this is where... Once you give them that power, how do you get it back? But, but you could say that about anything, because yes. the, the, the government restricts our rights to practice certain things mm. all the time. They do. And... Uh, and you're and comfortable we, with that. We, no, at times we accept and at times we object, but... That's the whole point of democracy and the way we live. We can't just say, I won't allow you any interference in my life because I don't trust you to get it 100% right. We accept 
some interference and we reject other interference and we argue the merits of each interference mm. as we come to them. Yes, indeed. But, I mean, we, we have a, a pretty decent democracy right now. We, you know, democracy is, is a fairly new thing in human history and mm. I think it's uh, a, a lot less uh, solidly established than some people assume. How about this thought? Because uh, you're really saying that the parent has has the right to make the decisions for the child in preference to the state. Mm. But that's um, kind of treating the child as a property of the parents when, in fact, um, I'm increasingly coming to the view that that it takes a village to raise a child and it's a village that's going to be stuck with a, a psychopathic child if things go wrong. So the, the village has rights and responsibilities as much as the parents yeah, look, to I, some extent. I probably read too many dystopian novels yeah. as a teenager, yeah. but I'm just really suspicious about giving too much power to the state. Yeah, It's not that I'm yeah. against vaccinations, yeah. as you know. Yes, I just think rather than mandate... We, I think education is a better way forward. You know, educate people so that they make rational choices about vaccinating their children rather than doing it because it's mandated. Um, I mentioned to you before recording that I've started reading a book called Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. And I'm really enjoying it. And it's got it lots of stuff in there that we're going to talk about. And... A couple of weeks ago, maybe last episode, we spoke about a humanist um, refugee whose application was rejected because he couldn't identify Plato. And we thought, well, hang on a minute, there are all sorts of humanists. And, and Plato thought, was, what, 500 BC or something like that? Perhaps something like that. Was he a yeah. humanist? So it was pretty rough on this... Um, on this refugee to knock him back mm. because of a lack of knowledge of Plato. Yeah, it's pretty rough. Because there are varying... And there's varying types of humanist. Mm, indeed. And in this book on Sapiens, dear listener, it's... Uh, I'm about halfway through it. And in a lot of the reviews, people say the first half's great and the second half's rubbish. And so, so far, everything I'm reading, I'm really enjoying. And it goes through the history of, of Homo sapiens and how we evolved and... Um, at one part in it talks about religion and talks about humanism and he says that there's really three kinds of humanism, 12th man, and as I was reading it, I was thinking, well, this is useful for us in these discussions that we have because where I call you a libertarian, but, okay, here are the three branches of humanism that this guy identifies. Liberal humanism, socialist humanism and evolutionary humanism. Humanism. So, liberal humanism, which is, I reckon is you, oh. I'm going to describe now. Um, humanity is individualistic and resides within each individual. The supreme commandment is to protect the inner core and freedom of each individual. Yeah, thumbs up. Sounds good. From the top man. A socialist humanist would think that humanity is collective and resides within the species Homo sapiens as a whole. The supreme commandment is to protect equality within the species. That's not quite me. But is there such a thing as equality in the species? Well, this is the thing. It's... uh, You know, we have talked on this podcast about problems with inequality in the world 
and unfortunately it seems the only way of of redressing inequality is to is to attack some personal freedoms so uh, so in order to rob from the sounds like you, you need to rob from the rich and give to the poor to to uh, fix inequality and by taking from the rich you are necessarily impinging their freedom so there's a conflict between equality and freedom that's just inherent to some extent but that sounds like a page out of the out of Stalin's um sort of workbook it, it does it? a little bit but anyway i'll give you the third one which is uh humanity is a mutate a mutable species humans might degenerate into subhumans or evolve into superhumans the supreme commandment is to protect humankind from degenerating into subhumans and to encourage its evolution into superhumans what do you think of that one Yes, I, I, think, I mean, I think philosophically, sounds like Mein Kampf. <laughs> well, well, that's true. That was Doesn't Hitler. It? Yes, was sort of in a sort of a racial profiling sort of situation. It does sound a bit Mein Kampf, but it also it, it can also be a little bit of. Um, remember, we spoke about Yanis uh, Varoufakis, the, the Greek former Greek economist. finance minister. Yeah said, you know, we've got a choice where we can either have a world that's like the Matrix or we can have a world that's like Star Trek and, you know, which, which way do we want to go? Yeah. Was, Look, I'm, I'm always so, suspicious of, yeah. of people who think we only have two choices, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, you? maybe I'll put words into his mouth, but, yeah. you know... Uh, but I take the point. Yeah, well, there are opposing directions. Mm. That, um, so it could be more that way rather than a sort of a Nazi style um, breeding of the best sort of thing. So, Yeah, ev- evolutionary forces are, is an interesting topic in itself, isn't mm. it? Mm. Mm. So, so anyway, more about that later. Liberal humanism, socialist humanism and evolutionary humanism. You're definitely in the first category, think, well yeah. and truly. Mm. Yep. Dear listener, not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, wait, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. We mentioned previously in Queensland, our state government is not interested in moving forward on assisted dying legislation despite it being on the policy of the Labor Party. And I said for something to happen, perhaps our Premier um, Palaszczuk um, needs to witness somebody having a tough death in order to give second thoughts. And there's an article here that says, uh, well, she's quoted as saying, I've witnessed my grandfather who suffered terribly from cancer in the final stages of his life. I think that anyone who watches such a tragedy unfold, especially someone so close and such a loved one, is, of course, going to be moved by that. However, I'd have 
to have a lot of detailed discussions with the medical profession as well to get a clear understanding of what's involved. Well, Anastasia, that's your job. You know, organise a few meetings and have some discussions and get something done. Like, you've watched your grandfather die a tough death by the sounds of it and you're saying you're not going to do anything until you've got more information? Well, get more information and Mm. get it done. She is, of course, a Labor Premier, so you would think if it's on their um, their list of things to do, she would be doing something about it. You would think, yeah. But it's it's sometimes surprising the people who are not uh, sold on the idea of a sister dying. I, I recall yeah. seeing Maxine McHugh, someone I greatly respect for her intellect and, um, and good sense, on Q&A. It must have been two or three years ago, I suppose, but she publicly said that she was not necessarily convinced that assisted dying was a good thing. Right. Mm. Yeah. Well, except there can be a, you know, differing views, but mm. if you're the Premier of the state, it's your duty to have those discussions and um, either say one way or the other mm. what you intend to do. Yeah, she seems to be sort of avoiding the issue of it. Yeah. Mm. Um, she just watched Campbell Newman get into all sorts of trouble by just picking fights with people and just decided she just wasn't going to do anything and therefore avoid all fights. Meanwhile, the opposition leader, Deb Frecklington, said she did not think the current laws should be changed. It's a very emotive issue and my position is personally that the laws don't need to change. But why? Does she say why? No, she says it's just emotive. It's emotive. We don't want too many emotions, do we? Yeah, because it's emotive, then I don't, you know, there's no rational discussion needs to take place, according to Deb. I I think those who who would like to see the laws changed and who have seen loved ones suffer, um, you know, go through prolonged suffering prior to death, I think they can be pretty emotive as well, can't they? Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm a bit worried about Deb Freckleton. She's a new opposition leader, but um, seems to be quite a conservative country woman. Um, Flo Bajelke-Peterson may have died uh, you know, a few weeks ago, but Deb could well be taking up uh, her place. Taking up the baton, so mm, to speak. Yeah. Um, we previously mentioned that GDP was a pretty rough statistic to use when ranking countries. Came across an article which um, gives another ranking um, based on all sorts of criteria and then has ranked countries as to how well they're going. They've got uh, they've ranked countries according to adventure, citizenship, cultural influence, entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, heritage, movers, open for business, power, and quality of life. And they've given different weightings to those categories, some of which seem a little dubious to me. Um, adventure. That's an interesting one. Isn't yeah, it? is the country up? Friendly, fun, pleasant, scenic and sexy place to be. So we're 3.24%. What does the percentage um, actually refer to? That's how much weight they've given those particular things. So things like um, citizenship is worth 16.95% of the total consideration as they're ranking these. And who decided on the... Uh, 
there's a university professor and a few other people have mm. come up with this one. Is this as a result of polling or research? Uh, basically, yet another attempt to get a more valuable statistic other than GDP. Yeah. Uh, the question, of course, is how did Australia fare? Well, who came first? Uh, I'll give you the top ten if my computer will allow me, and it's not allowing me to scroll. Oh, yes, it is. Um, number one, Switzerland, Canada, Germany, United Kingdom, Japan, Sweden. Australia came in at number seven, followed by the United States, France and the Netherlands. Keen listeners will be, know, will be keen to know what about Finland, and Finland came in at number 14. So what do you notice about the group? What, what Liberal Western democracies? Except for one. Uh, uh, which... Japan. You, know, well, you don't class Japan Some as liberal, liberal Eastern uh, democracy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Seriously? Yes, yes. But Western in virtually... In, in lots of... In lots of ways, Western, though. But yes, and yes. Yet, it's not. Yeah, true. I mean, I you know I love Japan as you know, and yeah. um, I have spent some time there. But um, well, in the same sense, then you know Australia is Eastern as well. If you want to really, uh, oh, I, I see what you mean. But yeah, culturally we're Western, yeah. whereas Japan still retains quite strong uh, traditional elements in their culture, in their in their sort of world view. Yeah. According to this one, China came in at number 20, so they made it into the, into the top 20. So oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Um, they've got China GDP per capita of 15,500, and um, that's starting to get up there. Yes, but per these, person. When, you, when you start to use income as, as a number, uh, China has a, a very well-off middle class of something like you know, 200 million. Yeah. Two. Hundred million. We are, what are we? Twenty-four million. Yeah. So they have a very, you know, f- relatively well-off, cashed-up middle class of something like two hundred million, Trevor. Yeah. So that would, you know, balance out the other, what could be half a billion or so people who are quite poor. I don't know. There's still a lot of poor people in China, yeah. and uh, there's a huge, there's a, uh, you know, we, we think about class difference or wealth difference, wealth disparities in our country. In China, yeah. it's massive, you know, between the very wealthy Chinese and the poor Chinese, the gulf is much wider. Yeah, mm. yeah. Anyway, they crept in, um, Chinese. Um, another article here, uh, dear listener. The top 1% of Australians, how much of Australian wealth do you reckon they own? A lot. Yeah. And the answer is 70%. Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry. The top 1% of Australians own more wealth than the bottom 70% combined. Yes. yes. So... It's sort of similar to the figures you, you, you get from the United States, isn't it? And, yeah. And just, well, not, not I suppose quite. the wealthy class... Mm. In Western countries in general, the wealthy can be very, very wealthy. And, um, yes, it's an interesting comparison. Yep. And right at that very top, their, um, uh, their income levels are accelerating nicely compared to the other um, 
lower categories. Indeed. So yeah, I saw some figures some time back when, you know, um, post post Reagan, I think, when the American economy grew more slowly, but where there was where there were gains in productivity. Uh, the vast bulk of the gains went straight into the bank accounts of the Super top 5% or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And the, the middle class of America just... They were just treading water mm. while the, 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 the rich were just cleaning up. Yeah. They had manipulated the system so well that any gains went straight to the rich. Yep, that's what's been happening. Yeah. It hasn't been quite as bad in Australia, but, you know... Uh, this is something we have to keep an eye on, isn't it? Mm. Well, I keep using this statistic that um, in the 50s and 60s, a, a middle-class American was a Detroit auto worker mm. who was earning, in today's money, the equivalent of $60,000 plus health care. Mm. And now um, that... Detroit auto worker is a Walmart worker yeah. who is earning less than twenty thousand a year it's, it's terrible. in today's money with no health care. And the and the other change apparently in America is that Detroit auto worker mm. would relatively easily afford to save up and send his children through university if that's mm. what they wanted. Mm. Apparently now uh, they're you know, a lot of what were middle class people are virtually putting their houses into mortgage mm. just to get money to help their children through university. And then, you know, the children are coming out with massive debts, aren't they? Mm. Mm. Um, people are starting to talk about a sugar tax. Well, as a liberal humanist, rather than libertarian, how do you feel about taxing... Um, cigarettes and sugar as a means of um, driving human behaviour away from nasty things? Oh. It's an interesting question. I don't really have a particularly strongly formed view on it. Right. I, can, I can see the argument in favour of it, although when I go to buy a bottle of gin, the, the gin I would like to buy costs... 70 or 80 dollars a bottle yes and i know that probably what is it at least 50 percent of that is tax isn't it yeah. probably more yeah um i don't know again i'm a little bit okay so you don't have a strong feeling on the sugar tax i then. don't to be honest i i'm right. not sure it's the way forward i think education is a is a more constructive way forward right teach people to take responsibility and to make better choices Sometimes you need carrots and sticks, though. No? Uh, that's maybe not. Yeah, but, you know, how big is the carrot, how big is the stick? Mm. All right. Well, let's, uh, there's a very interesting article here, which I've got a link to, and the... Um, let me just see who the author of this is. It is um, Emma Alberici, who you would have seen on ABC. Many times, yes. She's yeah. a, an excellent journalist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's got a very interesting article on the John Menendoo blog about sugar and tax. And it's not totally about sugar either. No, it's not. It's more about politics. Politics and corruption and power mm-hmm. as well. But as played out on the sugar field, mm. yeah. 
According to the World Health Organisation, a sugary drinks tax would work much the same way as tobacco excises have, as a price signal designed to discourage a behaviour. We can agree with that. Yeah. Look, I'm, 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 I am a bit sceptical because, uh, according to reports that we see... Who are the people who consume too much sugar? It's not your well-educated middle classes. Generally speaking, they're more... You know, the people who can afford... I don't know about to, that. No, oh, well, this is my observation. People who can afford to eat well will buy the best food available. Mm. And they will eat well, they'll go to the gym. You know, if they're well-educated... And they're mixing in circles, you know, if their social circles are also relatively well-educated, affluent, they're into being beautiful and healthy and fit. Mm. You know, they'll have their gym membership, they'll be buying lots of fresh fruit and vegetables, they'll be watching MasterChef or whatever to get ideas about... Okay, so you're saying it's a working class, lower class I think it is, to be honest. So, again, it will be like your cigarettes and your alcohol taxes... Yeah. It will be hitting the people who can least afford to spend more yes. and it'll be punishing them for their ignorance, in a, in a sense. Yes. Do, do uh, well, see... pun- punishing them if they actually keep buying it. Yes. If but as they keep buying it, it won't punish yeah, them. Yeah, but why do they keep buying it? Because they... Well, you know, I mean, it sounds to sugar. It might sound a little bit arrogant or elitist to say they don't know any better. But, and, of course, you know, but poor people are not necessarily stupid. There would be an addiction factor with sugar. Exactly, but, I mean... Like nicotine? The poorer you are, you know, this is my observation, the more poor you are, mm. the less well-educated you are, the greater your struggles in daily life to survive. Mm. Mm. Now, as we all know, we, we, we all look for, um, you know, something Quick to comfort. soothe. Yeah, we, we look for comfort. And, and, in fact, we call, you know, junk, uh, you know, chocolate and things like that comfort food, don't we? Yes. For a very good reason. Yes. That, that, and I know I have a bit of a sugar addiction myself. And I know in times when I haven't been all that happy, yeah, I, I overconsume in sweet foods as well. So I can sort of understand that. You know, poor, poorer people or people who are less well-off in, in our world may well consume more comfort food because they're less comfortable. And okay. they're the ones that are going to be hit in the hip pocket, so to speak, whereas we can sort okay. of... All right. Well, when, then do you take the same view with cigarettes? You, yeah, I sort of do. You think do, there shouldn't be this excessive tax on cigarettes? You think they should be, a, you know, basically a, a dollar a packet... I wouldn't say a dollar a packet. Because I probably could sell it for that. I wouldn't say a dollar a packet, but I think it is a little bit unfair. Mm. It's a little bit unfair to punish them for for making bad choices. Again, I think education is the the sensible path. Mm. (laughs) Just going back to this article... One 375ml can of soft drink contains 10 teaspoons of sugar, four more than the World Health Organisation says is the optimum daily intake. There's no nutritional value whatsoever in soft drinks and so-called energy drinks. Um, Since 1980, the obesity rates in Australia have just about tripled from 10% to 28%. The Grattan Institute estimate Obesity is now costing Australian taxpayers more than $5 billion a year in health 
healthcare costs. Mm. Mm, a lot of companies making a lot of money selling soft drinks to a lot of Australians. Um, In fact, look, I totally agree that sugar is a problem. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I totally see that, and I've, yeah. I've known that reject, for a while. You reject a tax as a means of discouraging yeah. people from buying it because they'll just go, wow, it's too expensive, I'll have to have some water instead. You know, I, I just wonder if it'll work anyway because they'll... Well, it works with cigarettes. I'm not so sure about that. Don't you, don't you see people... You, when you're at the supermarket, you see people walk up to the, the counter where they buy the, their cigarettes. Do they look like you're affluent businessmen and women? But, 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 but how, many, how many did you see still 40 smoking. years ago smoking, yeah. you know? But I think that's um, and, largely and, due to public education, and, to be and honest. And how many do you see when you're overseas in, you know, if you are in cafes and whatnot in, in Europe... Um, one of the frustrating things is how many people smoke so compared to Australia. And, look, there may yeah. be something in it. I'm, I'm, you know, uh, I was speaking to a young Frenchman this morning. Mm. As you know, in my line of work, I get to talk to uh, young adults from various European, East Asian, South American countries mainly. And I was talking to a young Frenchman and um, I asked him to... Yeah because we were talking about relative smoking levels. And I think in Australia, it's, is it around the 14 15% mark of adults who are smokers? Something like that. I don't know. Yeah, no, I'm going to try an experiment. I've got here on my phone this sort of Siri thing. I wonder if it'll have the answer. I'll just... Okay. No, I'll try it. What percentage of Australians smoke cigarettes? Let me check on that. The answer is 24.8%. Incredible. It sounds too high. Thanks, Siri, but I think <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't mesh with um, figures I've seen. I, I thought it was around 15, but look, I could be wrong. Current tobacco use amongst adults, Australia, 24.8%. That's surprisingly high, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah. Look, I, anyway, I, I asked this young Frenchman, do young... Um, French people smoke and he said yeah lots of them do mm. and he said he was surprised when he uh, came to Australia he was surprised at how few Australians smoke was compared with France was he also surprised by how expensive it was probably yeah and but he doesn't smoke yeah, yeah. but he said yeah in France he said a lot of a lot more people seem to be smokers so perhaps they haven't uh, instituted such um, you know punitory taxes. Mm. Uh, a spokesman for Health Minister Greg Hunt said the government didn't want to be responsible for lifting the grocery bill of Australian families. So the government's not interested in adding a sugar tax at the moment and certainly uh, um, the sort of LNP um, or National Party members with large sugarcane constituencies are not interested in it either. It's poison for them. You'd think. Yeah. yeah. But it wouldn't only be soft drinks, would it? be everything that sugar goes into. Yeah. It goes into a lot of processed foods. Yes, it does. Uh, a lot of low-fat food. So yes, if you yeah. see a low-fat version of a yoghurt or something, yeah. then invariably it'll have extra sugar to make up for the flavour that's missing from the fat. Not Ice cream. There. 
Yeah, all that. Anyway, um, Emma Alberici in this article gives that sort of intro and then she talks about a few different problems. Um, she talks about studies done of the benefits or problems caused by sugar. And she said that researchers from the University of California published data revealing that 26 studies of nutrition showing no link between sugar and obesity all were funded by the sugary drinks industry. Of the 34 studies that found the opposite to be true, only one received industry funding. This is a worrying development, 12th man, where so-called scientific studies appear to be based on who's paying the fee. And your argument for education um, has a problem there because the sugar industry is creating alternative facts or fake news that um, people say, well, you know, there's... uh, uh, 26 studies that all show there's no correlation between sugar and obesity, so I'll keep drinking. Like This, this is nothing new. Mm. This has been happening for decades. Uh, not only the sugar industry, mm. but all kinds of industries. Which is a problem with relying on education well, it's, it's and a goodwill because it's... powerful forces are, are contaminating that that education and goodwill. They are, but I think it's it's a problem of allowing um, private enterprise to influence our tertiary institutions, uh, not, of course our politics as well. But, I mean, this has been happening for a long time. And, in fact, um, have, you, have you heard the name Ansel Keys? No. Do you know who Ansel Keys is? No. Have you heard of... Key rations or K rations, they were called. K rations, I have, yes. Yeah, what are K rations? Uh, that was what um, military troopers would receive, wouldn't they? Right. You know, Starting in the Second World War, yeah. yes. That was what the, the trooper was equipped with to carry into the, onto the battlefield. Mm-hmm. That was supposed to sustain him and keep his energy levels high and provide you know, at least adequate nutrition while he was out in the field. Now, this was developed by a man, an American called Ansel Keys in the 1940s during the war, I guess. But, mm. look, after the war, he, uh, he, pr- he was a, a pretty good self-promoter, I guess, but he, he became very um, good friends with certain US politicians. And his pet project was the idea that uh, animal fats contribute uh, to heart disease, mm. OK? So he did his own studies, um, not really hard research. He just, he went around and, you know, collected various data about European countries. He did something famously called the, it was called something like the Seven Countries Study or something like that, where he took data um, about the the links between diet Mm. and heart disease in Mm. various European countries. But famously, it was revealed later, that he left out the data where, where, where the data didn't match what he wanted to find. Yes. So, in other words, he, he only selected data where it fitted yeah. his hypothesis yep. and he promoted it very effectively to the extent that the US government, health department, then basically said, OK, we are going to fund research into the link between animal fats and heart disease and basically 
you know, the research became skewed in that direction. In other words, nobody was was trying to disprove it. Everyone was trying to prove it. Yes. And, of course, if you try hard enough to, to, to find the data to back up your hypothesis, you'll find it. Yes. And, uh, and famously, that ABC journalist uh, recently who got the sack, you know, um, on the ABC TV science program, you, you don't recall? Mm. Are you a, a, a viewer? Was it a female journalist? A female journalist. About a year? Yeah, yeah. Two years ago or something? That's right, yeah. Where yeah. she, yeah, so she, she sort of cherry-picked she, stuff. She produced some programs and they went to air mm. and one of them was about the link between uh, animal fats and heart disease. The, another one about statins. The, that's the one that really, uh, where the shit really hit the fan because the medical fraternity got up in arms that she was basically telling people uh, they shouldn't be using their statin drugs, their, right. which are cholesterol-lowering drugs. Right. Okay. Now, I mean, the research is is very, very dodgy on on statin drugs, apparently. And you know, I've I've heard this from a certain friend who who reads a lot about nutrition and things like that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, she got the sack because she put to air a program um, challenging the accepted wisdom that animal fats are linked to heart disease. So she, you know, it was not only that one program, but those several programs where she challenged the established uh, medical fraternity's wisdom on those issues. However, there was a a guy, uh, a British researcher in the, when was it, 1970s, 80s, maybe even earlier than that, and he he had argued at the time that it wasn't animal fats that were linked to that were causing increases in heart disease in Western countries. It was in fact sugar, and he was arguing this back in the nineteen seventies and eighties. Yes, but yep. because there, the 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 you know research medical research had had swung so far behind the idea that it was animal fats that he was uh, he was basically um, uh, you know pilloried if you like, in yep. the scientific fraternity for yep. his view that it was sugar that was uh, to blame. Yep. So this is not a new idea, but, and, and, it, yes. and it's not at all new that when certain ideas gain, um, gain uh, what's the word? Traction. Traction, that's it. They also sometimes gain money and uh, government funding and industry funding. So obviously... The margarine industry is a huge industry now, mm. directly, probably, arguably, as a result yes. of this whole industry of, 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 um, of, of blaming animal fats yes. and saying that vegetable fats are, are the healthy alternative. Yes. So the margarine industry grew on that one and became massive, huge. You know, the yes. canola oil industry is massive. Yes. And yet... There are some people who would argue that canola oil is far from the most healthy oil for yeah. human consumption. So there you go. So, I mean, it's not just sugar. This applies to a whole range of areas. That's true. And I, while you were talking, I was looking something up, Paul, which there's another podcast called Revisionist History by Malcolm Gladwell. And uh, he's very good. And he did an episode on French fries in McDonald's and basically saying how magnificent they were when they were cooked in animal fat. Yes. And now, of course, they're not. No. And he tells the story of this 
guy who made it his mission to um, uh, convert people's use of from animal fat to other substitutes because he thought it was unhealthy. Mm. Um, but in that, he referred to another podcast that he had done earlier, and I, you'll have to research and find a dear listener, but it was about a guy who had done an experiment with people's eating habits with a high-fat and low-fat diet. And in order to make sure he had... Uh, and the people doing it all around the world, but he was a very, very meticulous man. And in order to make sure that um, he had a very secure control group, he only used people who were, I think, in institutions... Um, be they asylums or other things like that, where uh, staff could 100% guarantee what people are eating and there couldn't be any cheating on the side. And he, um, he then conducted an experiment where some people were put on a low-fat diet to see how they would live over the next 20, 30 years. And um, because he was convinced that a low-fat diet would be beneficial for them. Low animal fat diet. Yes. Um, yes. Because yes. people do still yeah. consume fats, but yes. they consume vegetable fats. Yes. Mm. And uh, he thought, you know, it will help them, and my experiment will prove that. Subsequently, after his death, when they were looking at the data, uh, his son was, and it revealed that, in fact, the people who had been put on the low-fat diet performed worse. Mm. And so this researcher who thought he was doing the right thing by putting these people in this diet actually probably shortened their lives uh, as part of his experiment. So a really interesting podcast. It's so, very interesting. So the yes. whole area of, of nutrition is very interesting and, yes. and very much connected with what we're discussing, which is the influence of industry. Yes. So... Back to Emma Alberici's article, she then goes on to a bit of a blurb about um, how these powerful industry groups are influencing our politicians and that rather than making donations directly to political parties, they're joining um, uh, business forums and paying huge membership fees in business forums where they're getting access to politicians and the membership fee to the forum is not seen as a political donation and doesn't have to be declared. So... Just so it's effectively a political donation, but it's dressed not... Dressed up as something else. Yes, exactly. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, uh, invasion Day, Paul... Australia Day, done and dusted. Um, any thoughts? There was various protests, particularly in Melbourne. Mm. Um, uh, different protesters got quite vehement in their yeah. abuse of white Australians for celebrating Australia Day on the twenty sixth. Oh yeah. Look, I you know as you know, I d I'm not I'm not um, handcuffed. To the, the 26th of January. I don't mm. mind if the date is changed, frankly. I, I, I think we need a date, you know, if we need a date at all. Uh, we need a date that, you know, everybody's happy with, more or less. You know, I can sort of, you know, I have, I have some sympathy for Indigenous Australians and their, their view of that history and 
that's attached to that date. I, you know, I'm quite sympathetic. I think the debate has been hijacked by, um, well, certain activists who tend to exaggerate the downsides of European settlement and uh, undervalue the upsides of European settlement of this country. I mean, yeah. p- people have made the point that if it wasn't the British, it would have been another European colonial power. And yes. would the Indigenous people have been any better off? We've seen that in other parts of the, of the world where similar things happened. Um, indigenous people, you know, always suffered regardless of who it was. So it was inevitable. And if it hadn't been a European power, who knows, it might have been the Chinese or the Japanese. We don't know. Either way, the Indigenous people are unlikely to have been any better off. Yeah. Back to my book, say. Not to justify it, but just to say that we have to put history in a bit of perspective. Yes. and um, There is very little perspective on these discussions mm. from... Uh, a deep historical or a broad historical point of view. And not only that, but they forget forget that people didn't view uh, relations with Indigenous people or people of different cultures in the same way as we view them now. You know, it's it's almost like they're they're trying to project us and the the way we see the world and the way we see human relations. They're trying to project us back into the colonial era, the imperial era, and, 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 and blame us for, for what we hadn't done and yes. what we wouldn't have done if we'd been there anyway. Yes, and what, what was done at that time was in line with, with it was values normal. at the time. Exactly. Yeah. Has anyone heard of you know, Genghis Khan? Yeah. I mean, he was not a European yeah. and he did not treat the people he conquered very nicely. Yeah. Just to give you a broad overview of the sweep of human history from this book, Sapiens, uh, he's saying that um, history shows that the world is moving relentlessly to unity on, on a worldwide basis. And he said, the best way to appreciate the general direction of history is to count the number of separate human worlds that coexisted at any given moment on planet Earth. So take, for example... Tasmania 10,000 years ago. Uh, um, Basically, well, for 12,000 years, nobody else knew about that the Tasmanians were there and the Tasmanians didn't know that anyone else was there. So they were a separate world, in a sense, Okay. Um, So if you define it in that sense and then say, how many different human worlds coexisted on Earth? Around 10,000 BC, our planet contained many thousands of them. By 2000 BC, their numbers had dwindled to the hundreds. And by 1450 AD, 90% of humans lived in a single mega world, which was the world of Afro-Asia, being most of Asia, most of Europe and most of Africa. these were already connected by significant cultural, political and economic ties. So by 1450, 90% of humans lived in, in that sort of um, situation. The remaining one-tenth of the population uh, was spread out between four different worlds, which was um, uh, the Mesoamerican, which was Central America and North America, 
the Andean world, which was Western South America, the Australian world, and the Oceanic world, which was um, uh, Southwestern Pacific Ocean from Hawaii to New Zealand. So that was in 1450. And he says that over the next 300 years, the Afro-Asian giant swallowed up all of the other worlds. The Spanish conquered the Aztecs. Uh, they also conquered the Andean world in, in 1532. Uh, Europeans, of course, landed on the Australian continent uh, in 1606. And that pristine world would come to an end when British colonisation began in earnest in 1788. Um, Fifteen years later, the Britons established their first settlement in Tasmania, thus bringing the last autonomous human world into the Afro-Asian sphere of influence. This is part of it, Paul. It, it was the last one to fall, really, the sort of, as an autonomous, independent world, the Australian world was, was the last one to go, and, and hence it's the most bitter because it's... Yeah, it's such recent memory. There, there have been more recent little tiny pockets of mm. um, hunter-gatherer societies, even in Malaysia up until probably 15, 20 years ago. There were small groups of people who lived in the, the rainforests until the, um, you know, the uh, logging, the timber tycoons in Malaysia basically clear-felled their homes yeah. and uh, herded them into little... Um, you know, settlements. So he says in the book, yeah, I'll just go on, the single global culture is not homogenous, um, but they're all closely connected and they influence one another in myriad ways. Mm. Um, and just on the subject of culture, on the next page he says that um, people talk about authentic culture, yeah, free of external influences, mm. and he says there are no authentic cultures left on earth. One of the most interesting examples of this globalisation is ethnic cuisine. In an Italian restaurant, we expect to find spaghetti in tomato sauce. In Polish and Irish restaurants, lots of potatoes. In an Argentinian restaurant, we can choose between dozens of kinds of beef steaks. In an Indian restaurant, hot chilies are incorporated into just about everything. And the highlight of any Swiss, Swiss cafe is thick hot chocolate under an alp of whipped cream. Mm. But none of these foods is native to those nations. It's true. Tomatoes it, came from South America. Potatoes came from South America. Yes. And uh, you know, tobacco Mexican as tomatoes, well, of course. chilies, peppers, cocoa, from, all Mexican in origin. Yeah. So when tobacco people talk about authentic cultures, you've got to pull them up and say, hold on a minute. I know. I mean, you might think... Cultures evolve. That's you, good. That's a good thing. Yeah. You, you might think kimchi is the sort of ultimate authentic Korean food, and yet they didn't have chilies until the Portuguese transported yeah. the chili from South America uh, to Japan. It was cultivated in Japan for a little while, and then somebody took it to Korea. The Japanese didn't like it too much, but the Koreans loved it. And, okay. and, but now the Koreans think that chili is an authentic part of their traditional yeah. diet. Yes. It's only since and the Portuguese took it over the, to that part of the world that they've had it. Yeah, And it is, because culture is whatever it happens to be at any That's particular right. point in time. Look, I was going to ask you about those cornrows you've had done in your hair, Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> Very painful. 
but yeah. No. But uh, they look good. They, yeah. they suit you. Yeah. Um, so that's one point, is, is just the sweep of human history throughout the planet, and that's just human nature, what has happened and was always going to happen, and that needs to be recognised. But, but the other point I want to make, Paul, is so there's an over-exaggeration of the evils of, of colonial absolutely, power. Absolutely. But there's also uh, an over-exaggeration of the, of the paradise that was here um, before they arrived. And in particular, Paul, we hear a lot about how the Aboriginal people were such great custodians of the land and um, knew how to manage the land so that it wasn't... Um, overexploited. Overexploited, mm. etc. And mm. we're very careful about these matters. Mm. And in this book, Sapiens, again, this guy... Uh, describes the movement of of uh, Homo sapiens into the Australian landmass, mm. and they basically found a lot of um, large, furry, slow-moving mammals full of protein. Yep. And when humans arrived in a rush, the animals didn't have time to evolve to save themselves. Yeah, that's a contentious so, theory. I mean, there's this, you know... Uh, no, well, uh, he's saying this is pretty much beyond doubt in that he is saying that the Aboriginal people transformed the Australian ecosystem beyond recognition. By in killing that, the large, um, in the large that, marsupials. Uh, there used to be a 200-kilogram, 2-metre kangaroo. There was a marsupial lion. Yeah. Uh, flightless birds, twice the size of ostriches, dragon-like lizards, and a two-and-a-half-ton wombat. Yeah. Um, a- in New Zealand as well, of course, there was the... Yeah, um, yeah. What was it called? The moa? The, yes. the large flightless bird. Yeah. And the, one theory is that those birds... Because New Zealand was basically, uh, you know, country of birds, they didn't have any indigenous mammals as such, did they? I think it was just a country of birds and a few lizards, and that was about about it. But the the theory is that the Maori found the moa very easy to kill, and, of course, it was a large lump of protein. Why wouldn't they eat it? Yeah. Mm. Uh, So within a few thousand years, virtually all of those giants vanished Mm. uh, soon after the uh, Aboriginal population moved in, or Homo sapiens. Indeed. And um, some people might argue that that may have been caused by climate change rather than through human intervention, Mm. but the facts reveal that, in fact, those animals had survived multiple uh, ice ages in the past without any problem. But didn't the same happen in Europe with the large mammals? And the same happened in the Americas as well. Mammoths. Yeah, as soon as uh, mankind came along and uh, saw hmm. uh, large furry packs of protein walking around, um, the easy ones were soon knocked off. So so I guess the point is uh, it's an exaggeration when uh, they speak about the custodians of the land. And and besides the animals, Paul, the one other thing that, uh, that they did do was they... Uh, harnessed fire mm. and uh, the theory is that the Aboriginal population used fire to you know um, drive beasts into a certain area or just to kill them and come and pick up the burnt carcasses afterwards and what he says is that um, uh, 
let me just find it here, about um, um, eucalypts. Uh, eucalyptus trees were rare in Australia 45,000 years ago. But when uh, Homo sapiens started using fire, uh, eucalyptus are fire-resistant, so in fact they thrived as a result of, mm. of human intervention. So the Australian landscape is completely different. Mm. There was a lot was more rainforest. Before mankind arrived yeah. um, and completely decimated the large mammals and completely changed the vegetation mm. when uh, eucalypts was a rare thing and now look at it. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. And look, we, you know, we can't completely hold our Indigenous brothers and sisters responsible for well, that. But well, well, we can, but we can't criticise. Like, you could say, well, that, that's... There were no doubt other factors, climatic, whatever factors. But, look, I think the point we're making is we're not, we're not saying, our, you know, the Indigenous people of this country were necessarily bad people. What we're saying is let's get some pers- historical perspective mm. on humanity as a whole... And it's, uh, you know, social evolution, yes. uh, its impact on the environment, its impact on each other, mm-hmm. you know, various, let's face it, powerful groups dominated less powerful groups everywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not, you know, what gets me is this, you know, this tendency to blame Europeans for all the ills of the world. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's what Europeans have done in the last few hundred years has often been pretty horrendous. But it hasn't been just a European crime, you know what I mean? It's a, it's a human story, not a European story. Yeah. And, and the other point you were making was we tend to romanticise the, you know, the image of the noble savage, the idea that our Indigenous Australians were living in some kind of paradisical state before mm. the British came and spoiled the party... And, in fact, the reality was probably, you know, quite variable. You know, Aboriginal people in the, in the you know, fertile coastal strip down the east coast and some of the southeast and maybe Tasmania probably had a, a pretty good lifestyle, but those in the interior probably struggled a lot of the time to, just to survive. And the population numbers were very low, I think, in the interior of Australia. Yeah, don't know. Yeah, so we tend to romanticise this idea that pre-civilization, you know, the, the hunter-gatherers had some kind of wonderful lifestyle, whereas, in fact, life was often short and brutal. And uh, I, I don't mm. think... I, I mean, I, I know that I've done a little bit of study at university on hunter-gatherers, and some of the what they call banned societies... Uh, were much more egalitarian in, in a lot of respects, but not always, you know. This book, Sapiens, actually, um, he um, praises... Well, not praises, but he speaks quite favourably of the hunter-gatherer lifestyle. And that's one of the criticisms that I've read in reviews where people say he's just over the top in, in how wondrous he claims it was. Mm. He sort of says somewhere in there that, well, life expectancy might have been 40 or 45. He said that a lot of that was because uh, there was high mortality of, of, of childbirth. Yes. And if you actually made it to 30 or 40, you had reasonable prospects of living till 60. But, I don't 
that's what he's saying. One, but, one but, unfortunate accident yes. could have been the end of your life. Yes. And they didn't have antibiotics until, yes. the, what, around the, the early 1940s. Yes. Prior to that, you know, anyone who got a simple infection could be dead within two or three days. Yes, yes, yep. And it's an interesting book because he talks about different lifestyles and, and how the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, in his mind, would have been a far more attractive one than the agricultural um, peasant lifestyle, which he describes later. Anyway, so far, I'm really enjoying it. And the other, the other thing that um, he talks about human development and how we evolved into what we are now, and he said that um, as a species, we just had this large head with a large brain, and it really didn't do us much good for a long, long, long time. Um, uh, nearly two billion... Well, I haven't got the figures in front of me. It was a long time that we were a marginal species and we were not near the top of the, tr- of the, of the tree at all in the sense of... Or a, what do they call the top of the... The food uh, chain. The, the food chain, correct. And um, our little niche at one point was probably just smashing... Um, discarded bones and sucking the marrow out of them because yes. we could use stone tools to use... The bones left bones. behind by larger, more powerful predators, of yeah. course. But anyway, just briefly, uh, so our heads were unusually large and we had this brain and that wasn't, a, wasn't proving helpful because brains use a lot of energy mm. and an intestinal tract uses a lot of energy. Mm. And anyway, we started walking as opposed to, you know, walking upright, mm. which meant women's hips became narrower. And this caused a problem with childbirth because with a large head and narrow hips, women would have difficulties delivering babies. So we started to deliver babies prematurely developed. Yeah. And because of that, we had to develop social systems and tribes so that we could look after women and babies um, because uh, these babies we were bringing into the world were so poorly developed and needed nurturing for a long time. Yeah. And, and that factor led to us becoming the social species mm-hmm. that we became. Uh, then, of course, fire came along and... Once you could cook a meal, your time spent eating was about an hour compared to a chimpanzee who had to spend five hours eating because you could just easily digest the food. But anyway, it's really interesting that a large head and a small um, hips meant that babies were born prematurely, um, underdeveloped, and we therefore needed a village or a tribe with good social skills to move on. And the females and, needed a mate and, and that the, would hang around. And then those social skills built up our intelligence and other things along the way. So mm. there we go. It's, if you're into that sort of stuff, dear listener, yes. uh, I recommend the book. And in fact, dear listener, I'm going to have it up on the website, ironfistvelvetglove.com.au. Uh, There's a little books tab there. And if you click on it and buy it from the book depository, after clicking on our website, I'll get a little kickback of like 5% or something, or it's got my will from that. And nobody has ever bought a book from book depository yet through our website. So you could be the first, dear listener, and help us out. So, um, Paul, 
ton of topics still on the board, but uh, we probably should stop. We probably should. Yeah. yeah. Hold but, it over till next time. Yes. And um, dear listener, if you're um, first time listener, um, let us know. If you're a long time listener, let us know. Uh, if you want to support the podcast, you can go onto Patreon and make a, don- a donation per episode. If you don't like that idea, you can click on a tab and just send us some money via PayPal as a one-off. If you've been listening to 30, 40, 50, 100 episodes and you haven't done that, it's it's probably time, I'd say, to do that. And we love feedback and love people sending us articles and we love people leaving a voicemail message on SpeakPipe. There's another link on the website where you can, you can leave a message. And... Um, yeah, so there we go. All right, Paul. Well, magnificent effort again from the 12th man. Thanks for inviting me again, Trevor. We'll it's talk been to fun. You. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye, listener. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less but in any event you can subscribe there if you don't like the idea of a regular subscription the website has a link to a paypal donation so you could just do a one-off donation every now and again so there you go it'd be good to uh spread the word get a few more listeners and that way look if we ended up getting more listeners and more money we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes provide some more content so it's up to you If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.